Let me invite you to turn to uh, Revelation chapter uh, 21. Revelation 21, we are uh, continuing in our series through the book of Revelation. And uh, as we continue in our study of this amazing book, we come this morning to Revelation 21 verse 9. And my goal today is to cover uh, verses 9 through uh, 27. And there's a lot of ground to cover this morning just to get us uh, situated. Uh, Here in Revelation 21, we find ourselves after the millennial reign of Christ upon uh, the earth and after Satan and the wicked have been cast into the lake of fire. Uh, Last week, we saw uh, the, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, which replaces the present heavens and the present earth. And uh, we also saw the, the new Jerusalem briefly being spoken about. And we heard God's promise to remove all sorrow uh, and pain from his people and how he will dwell together with them for all of eternity in heaven. And he will satisfy their thirst with the springs of the water of life uh, forever. Along with the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, um, we had John just briefly mention seeing the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And it is this city that John wants to go into greater detail in explaining uh, to all of us uh, today. Write down a couple references, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham, thousands of years ago, was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He never found that city, but the city he was looking for is the city that we will find in our passage today. And according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, we Christians, the writer of Hebrews says, also know that here on earth, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And in our passage today, we're going to see this city on full and vivid display. Uh, One more reference to write down in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus speaks to his disciples and uh, right before, you know, he goes to the cross and then departs from them and he's preparing them for his departure. And he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Well, Jesus left them at his ascension. And for the last 2,000 years, he has been preparing a place for them and for us who know him. And today, we're going to get to see at least a big part of what it is that Jesus has been working on over these past 2,000 years. In fact, studying uh, the passage we're going to be looking at today, I couldn't help but think of the old Keith Green song entitled, I Can't Wait to Get to Heaven. How many of you have any memory of that song? All right, a few of you. Uh, He introduces the song uh, to his live audience uh, by saying these words, I know He says that Jesus Christ has been preparing a home for me and for some of you for 2,000 years. And if this world took six days and that home took 2,000 years, then, hey man, this is like living in a garbage can compared to what's going up there. He then breaks into song and sings to God And says, I can't wait to get to heaven when you'll wipe away all my fears. In six days, you created 
everything, but you've been working on heaven 2,000 years. Well, Keith Green's point is, I think, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, because God can do anything in any amount of time. But I like the sentiment that that song is trying to express, and the heaven that Keith Green is talking about in that song involves the new Jerusalem that we're going to see described for us this morning, the place that Jesus has been preparing for his people for the last 2,000 years. And in our passage today, we get to see the finished product, and I think you'll be impressed. As we work through the passage today, as you see on the notes, uh, we're going to observe six descriptions that John gives to us of the New Jerusalem in verses 9 through 27. And there's way more than just six descriptions, but this is just a stumbling effort on my part to try to categorize the descriptions that John provides for us in these verses. And let's word the first of these descriptions this way. The New Jerusalem features a meaningful symmetry of twelves, a meaningful symmetry of twelves. In verses 12 through 14 alone, we see the word 12 six times. And in verse 13, we see four threes, which add up to 12. From verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter, we see a form of the word 12 nine times total. And we miss this in the New American Standard translation, but we learn in verse 16 that this city is 12,000 stadia in each direction. And we also learn in verse 17 that the walls of this city are 144 cubits, which is 12 times 12. This amazing symmetry of 12s reflects a remarkable intentionality on the part of the architect and the builder of this city. The number 12 represents completeness and wholeness, and we will see how this meaning is played out as we work through our passage this morning. And as we work through the text, you'll maybe just want to mark all the times that you see the word 12. For starters, observe how John gets positioned to see the new Jerusalem. In verse 9, he says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, back in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1, one of these very same angels used very similar words, inviting John to see the judgment of the great harlot, the city of Babylon. And now here, perhaps this same angel is inviting John to see the holy city, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the new Jerusalem that will never be destroyed. John then says in verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Back in chapter 17, once again, John, we learn, was carried away in the spirit into a wilderness so that in the wilderness he would be able to see from that vantage point the harlot city of Babylon and witness her judgment. Yet here in verse 10, John is being carried to a great and high mountain in the spirit in order to have a vantage point with which to see the new Jerusalem. 
So there's two different vantage points here, the wilderness to see the harlot, Babylon, and now a great and high mountain to see the beautiful city, the new Jerusalem. Leon Morris, the commentator, says that such a vantage point of a great and high mountain shows that, and I quote, the heavenly city is to be discerned only from an exalted standpoint, perhaps the highest point of faith. I wonder what vantage point you will be viewing the city from this morning. I hope it will be from a vantage point of faith. From the language of verses 9 and 10, there's no denying that we are to expect to see that the new Jerusalem is the bride of of Christ. There's no getting around this language. The angel says to John in verse 9, look at it again, come here, I will show, and you might want to underline that word show, because you're going to see it again, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then in verse uh, 10, John says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed, same word, showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So it's evident that this new Jerusalem is the bride and the wife of the lamb who is Christ, right? And this raises a question, and the question is, if Ephesians 5 indicates that the church is the bride of Christ, then how can it be that the new Jerusalem is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So you may ask, is the bride of Christ the church or is the bride of Christ the place called the New Jerusalem? And the answer is yes. The New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ because it is the dwelling place for Christ's church. We're going to see it's more than that, but it is the dwelling place for Christ's church. The same title, Bride of Christ, is used for both the people and the place where they dwell. The bride is both the people of God and the place of their eternal abode, which is the new Jerusalem. That having been said, the fact that This new Jerusalem is called the wife or the bride of the lamb means that the city and its eternal inhabitants will be the apple of Christ's eye, the recipients of his husbandly affections. He will be the head of the new Jerusalem and make its inhabitants the supreme object of his loving care and devotion for all of eternity. And the inhabitants of the city will respond to his leadership and to his love. As John looks upon this city, he describes it in verse 11. Uh, Look at what he says in verse 11. He describes it as having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Here in this verse, we have the word glory and the word brilliance, speaking of the shimmering brightness of this holy city. John describes this brilliance as being like a stone of crystal clear jasper. In John's world and in our world today, jasper is an opaque Stone, but here John is describing something that is both jasper like and crystal clear, which some commentators take to mean that John is perhaps describing something closer to what we would think of as a diamond today, and that's quite possible. As for This city's walls and gates, John says, beginning in verse 12, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, 
and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. Keep in mind that John just described the city as being crystal clear, which would indicate that these walls reflect this crystal clarity. In our modern world, we tend to build walls to keep people out or to keep prying eyes from looking in to see what it is that's going on behind the walls. In some cases, walls are built to keep people inside, like in a prison. But these walls will have no such purpose in the New Jerusalem. These walls of the New Jerusalem are crystal clear, hiding nothing. And the presence of the three gates on all four sides, the north and the south and the east and the west, indicate that the inhabitants of this city are free to adventure forth from the city and free to re-enter the city whenever they return. The presence of these gates says to everyone on the new earth, all the redeemed who are on the new earth, you are welcome. Please come in. In Bible times, as many of you know, gates were the locations where business was conducted, where people assembled, where decisions were made, and where news would be passed around and where discussions were held. So you can bet that these gates of the New Jerusalem will be happening places as people are going out and coming in, returning from their adventures on the new earth. We're told in verse 12 that each of these gates had names written on them. John says, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of of Israel. These names of the 12 tribes of Israel are taken by most interpreters, even dispensational interpreters, to mean that the new Jerusalem is inhabited by redeemed people from the 12 tribes of Israel, and that these redeemed Israelites from every age are not only welcome into this city, but that they themselves are part of the welcoming committee for all who enter this city. As for this city's foundation stones, in verse 14, John says, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We're not sure if these foundation stones represent 12 layers of foundational material with each layer on top of the other, or if they represent 12 massive carved stones that stretch for hundreds of miles from one gate to the other. But the fact that this city features the names, as we've already seen of the 12 tribes of Israel on its gates and the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ on its foundation stones reveals, as Charles Swindoll says, and I quote, this city will be the dwelling place of the united people of God, Old and New Testament believers whose salvation rests on the completed work of Jesus Christ, where God's promises to national Israel and the church will reach their ultimate fulfillment. Now, if you're interested in more details, there's more details to come. Uh, and next up are the dimensions of this city that John wants to share with us. And this brings us to the second description that John gives to us of the new Jerusalem, which will be our abode for eternity. Uh, number two, the New Jerusalem is a perfect cube that is massive in size. The New Jerusalem is 
a perfect cube, ultimately in its shape, that is massive in size. Beginning in verse 15, John says, the one who spoke with me, so this is the angel that is showing him, giving him a tour of the new Jerusalem, had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. Verse 16, the city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he, the angel, measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. So John tells us in verse 15 that this angel had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and to measure its gate and its wall. And John tells us in verse 16 that the city is laid out as a perfect square. And he tells us that its length was as great as the width. And so far we comprehend that. Then he tells us that this angel measures the city with this measuring rod and measured it. And the New American Standard says 1,500 miles, but the Greek text says 12,000 stadia. 12,000 stadia, essentially the city would be on each side. And 12,000 stadia is closer to 1,380 miles in our reckoning today. And so the New American Standard just is throwing out a round figure. If you want to be more precise, it's essentially 1,380 miles would be the equivalent of 12,000 stadia. And then John says something that takes our breath away and blows our fuses. Uh, He says at the end of verse 16 that its length, the city's length, and width and height are equal. This means that the city is not only 1,380 miles wide, but also 1,380 miles long and 1,380 miles high. This means that the city is not just a two-dimensional Square, but a three-dimensional cube with its length and width and height being equal. Go figure. And you might hear that and think, man, there's just no way that a city could be this high on the new earth. But if you're thinking that, you may be underestimating the size of the new earth. It's quite possible that the new earth will be millions of times larger than our present earth. We also technically don't know if this city of the new Jerusalem is sitting upon the new earth or hovering above it. Either way, nothing is impossible with God. John then tells us in verse 17 that the angel measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements The New American Standard translation says 72 yards. The Greek text says 144 cubits. And a cubit was approximately 18 inches. So 144 cubits would make it about 72 yards in our reckoning. When speaking about the measurement of the wall, if we go only by what is said in the Greek text, we're left unsure about whether this measurement is describing the height of the wall or the thickness of the wall. And if you read different commentators on this passage, you'll see that commentators go different ways. Some say this is describing the height of the wall and others say it is describing the thickness of Of the wall. In fact, some of you, if you have the NIV translation, it puts the word thick 
in its translation, but then it has a marginal note telling you that it could be referring to the height rather than the thickness. Either way we look at this, honestly, we're left kind of scratching our heads a little bit. If the walls are 72 yards high, that's, that's a high wall, but that's not a very high wall for a city that ascends 1,380 miles up, right? And if the wall is 72 yards thick, that's, that's a thick wall by our reckoning, but that's not a very thick wall for, or that's not very thick for a wall that goes up 1,380 miles. But upon further thought, I think this is the genius of this design. Keep in mind that there are no enemies to protect this city from any longer. So higher or thicker walls are not needed. It seems that the only purpose of these walls is to reflect beauty and to frame the gates and to delineate the boundaries of the new Jerusalem. These walls, as we've already seen, are crystal clear. So likely you'll be able to see through these walls in some way. Either way, the dimensions of this city and its walls are fantastic to consider, so much so that John seems to know that some of us might be inclined to take these dimensions as merely symbolism. So John says in verse 17, and he, the angel, measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Why would John throw that in there? I know of no other way personally to interpret John here than to understand him to be assuring us that the measurements that he has provided for us in the preceding verses are reliable and that nothing has been lost or altered in the transfer of the measurements from the angel to him. There really will, it seems, be a city of these remarkable dimensions in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you have trouble comprehending a city of these dimensions, you should realize that John, the apostle, would have had an even harder time than you would. A city of this size that John is describing and its length and width would easily encompass much of the entirety of the Roman Empire of John's day. And keep in mind, John had no knowledge of the new world that would be discovered centuries later. So John the Apostle's world in his day was much smaller in his mind than our world is in ours. And yet John faithfully writes down what he sees. I'm sure John later, after you know, the vision was over and in the weeks that followed, I'm sure he later reread what he wrote and was thinking, how can a city be this large? How can it be almost 1,400 miles high? How can it be three-dimensional in this way? But I'm sure he would have thought, I don't know, but I know what I saw. And I saw the angel measure this city with measurements that are the same as human measurements. And this is what I was told to write down. And if you're sitting here this morning and the dimensions of this city leave you incredulous, let me at least tell you what I think when I read a passage like this. If, if I were to come upon a passage like this, uh, describing the new Jerusalem and the eternal state, and what I read in no way transcended what seems feasible to me and my pea-sized brain. If I read the words of a passage like this 
that were maybe described differently and thought, oh yeah, this is all perfectly understandable and reasonable and totally possible in my normal human reasoning. If that's what I was reading, then I would personally become suspicious and incredulous. I would know that what I'm reading is merely the product of a human mind operating with normal limitations. But as it stands, John is describing something more real than you and I can even imagine. And it's greater than anything we can conceive of right now. And John gives us real measurements that you and I can understand. Yet, a city of these dimensions is far beyond anything that we can comprehend. But make no mistake, this city of these dimensions is real And we know this because John speaks of this city in terms that are concrete and spatial. This is not merely an ideal and fantastic city, but a true, real, substantial, and eternal city that he is depicting here. We kind of need to get out of our heads, I think, that our present existence is material and substantial And that the eternal state will have us living in a reality that is unsubstantial and immaterial. The new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will be material and physical with a density and a size that will make our present world seem unsubstantial and tiny by comparison. Along these lines, John wants us to know something about what the city is composed of, which brings us to the next description of the new Jerusalem. Number three, let's word it this way. The new Jerusalem is composed of the finest materials. The new Jerusalem is composed of the finest materials. As for the material of the city's walls, John says in verse 18, the material of the wall was jasper, And the city was pure gold like clear glass. Given how John earlier described jasper as crystal clear, he's likely saying here that the walls are diamond-like, featuring a transparency that one would not normally expect of city walls. Yet the predominant thing in John's sight is that the city, get this, was pure gold. And not gold like our gold, which is opaque, but gold, he says, that is like clear glass. None of us have ever seen gold that is like clear glass. But that is what the gold in this massive city is comprised of. Imagine how much gold that is. I I read this week um, uh, online that the World Gold Council uh, estimates that if you took all of the gold that's ever been mined and discovered throughout human history and melted it all into a single cube. That cube would only be 71 feet wide by 71 feet long by 71 feet high. In other words, if you take um, all of the cubic footage that we have access to here in the Bournes building, uh, this room and the lobby, room 103 and the Sunday school rooms, including the hallways. If you took all of the cubic footage that, um, that we lease here at Bournes and you just put gold bars in every room and just stack them up, all of the gold that's ever been discovered and mined throughout human history would not even reach the ceiling of this building here that we have access to. And by the way, uh, Jonathan DeMille, our communications director, helped me to figure that out. So let's give him a big hand. 
And so imagine, guys, a city that is made of the purest gold, 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles high. That's just amazing to consider. John says that the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Back in this day, glass, they had glass back then, but it was normally very dark because of all the impurities. And clear glass was a rare commodity, typically found only in a king's court. And this is the kind of glass that John is speaking of here. In this city, the walls and building materials are characterized by both a substance and a transparency. There are no walls to hide behind and block people's view, or we're going to see to block the light of this city that emanates from God, meaning that in the New Jerusalem, in ways that we can't even fully comprehend, even after studying a passage like this, we will live in transparency, in a place that is characterized by a beautiful transparency. There will be no shame in this city. There will be nothing we will wish to keep private that we will not want anyone to look upon. There will be nothing that we won't want others to see. The new Jerusalem is a place of unimaginable substance and transparency. And you know what? You can actually begin. You and I can begin to prepare for life in a place like this by living in transparency even now. Transparency before God, transparency before others, letting others see us as we are, warts and all, and letting others see Christ emanating from us and through us, and letting the light of God shine forth through us to other people, and by, even in the here and now, refusing to ever participate in anything sinfully shameful such that we feel we must hide behind walls of our own making from others in order to do those things. A city featuring this kind of clarity and transparency and we'll see light uh, may be very attractive to some of you, but some of you may be like, no, no, I want, I want walls that I can hide behind and that I can have some alone time and me time and do whatever I want to do and no one see. That's not the way the new Jerusalem is going to be. As for the foundation stones of this city wall, beginning in verse 19, John says the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the 11th, Jacinth, and the 12th, Amethyst. And let's give me a big hand for reading through that list. I read it to my wife last night, and she said, I think you mispronounced one of those. And I looked it up, and sure enough, I did. So uh, I appreciate her help on this. In these verses, John is not so much speaking of the composition, the full composition of these foundation stones, but of their adornment. Uh, Notice that he says in verse 19, the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned. They were beautified, literally, with these precious stones. He says that they were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And he notices that each foundation stone featured unique adornments. And if you take the time to study through the list of precious stones that John lists here, you end up with virtually every color on the spectrum, like of the rainbow, for example. 
you end up with about four shades of green and different shades of blue and purple. And you end up with various yellows and gold and then the deep red of the sardius stone. The light of God's glory makes these precious stones luminescent, reflecting the light of God's glory in a brilliant, dazzling variety of hues. And by the way, uh, normally throughout human history, foundation stones, they're not something to look at. They're buried under the ground. But these are visible, which might serve as an argument for the fact that this city will hover above the new earth. Just as remarkable, observe what John says about the gates of this city. John says in verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. Pearls were very expensive in John's day. Even in our day, Jesus tells a story about a man who found a pearl, and what did he do? He sold all that he had in order to have this pearl. The most expensive pearls on earth today are worth millions of dollars. And notice that John does not say here that the gates were adorned with pearls or with a pearl, but that the 12 gates were 12 pearls, saying... Each one of the gates was a single pearl. Imagine that. And think about why pearl would appear in the New Jerusalem and that each of these gates would be a single pearl. As the commentator John Phillips says, listen to this, I love this. He says, a pearl is the only gem formed by living flesh. The humble oyster receives an irritation, and around the offending article that has penetrated it or hurt it, the oyster builds a pearl. The pearl, he says, is the answer of the oyster to that which injured it. To say it another way, the pearl is the beautiful thing that results from the intrusion of something hurtful or painful. Given that fact, I doubt that any of us will look upon these pearly gates of the New Jerusalem and not think of Jesus Christ and the pain that he endured, and all the beauty that he has, all the layers of beauty that he has generated from that pain, not the least of which are these 12 beautiful gates of the new Jerusalem. As for the street of this city, at the end of verse 21, John says, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And there's transparency again. John's language here tells us that he's describing a kind of gold, the likes of which we have never seen on this earth, because gold as we know it is not transparent. But the gold of these streets is transparent. This gold is obviously hard enough for people to walk on, yet John tells us that it is like transparent glass. John could see through these gold streets, and you will be able to also. And by the way, if you think it might bother you to walk on transparent see-through streets that are hovering above the earth, if that is not an attractive thought to you, just trust me, it won't bother you. In the eternal state, you will be able to handle it just fine. There's something else that John notices about this city, and this has to do, interestingly enough, with something he notices is not in it. 
This brings us to the next description of the New Jerusalem. Number four, the New Jerusalem has no temple except God and the Lamb. The New Jerusalem has no temple except God and the Lamb. To our surprise, as we're just kind of reading through the passage, John notices that there is actually something missing in the New Jerusalem. After all, no place can have everything, right? In verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in it. That's a striking observation on his part. Ever since the reign of Solomon, Jerusalem has always been known for its temple. From Solomon's temple to the rebuilt temple in the days of Ezra to Herod's beautification of that temple that was then standing in the days of Christ to the temple that will be in Jerusalem during the tribulation period spoken about earlier in the book of Revelation to the massive millennial temple that Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. Perhaps because of all of these previous temples in Jerusalem, John looks for the temple in this new Jerusalem and expects to find the most beautiful temple of them all. Instead, he finds no temple anywhere, but then he begins to realize why. He says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Think about it, guys. To have a temple implies that God's special presence is in one place more than it is in another place. But that will not be the case with the new Jerusalem. God's glorious presence and the glorious presence of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, will be everywhere throughout the new Jerusalem. Every spot of this city will be equally infused with the glory of God and be equally sacred. By the way, commentators point out that the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple is said to be a perfect cube. And you can write down the reference, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20. So the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple was a perfect cube with all sides being equal, just like the New Jerusalem will be. For the new Jerusalem will be a perfect cube as well, indicating that this whole city itself is a holy of holies, where the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb will dwell. This holy of holies called the new Jerusalem will not just be a place that one person can visit on our behalf once a year, nor is it a place that we will have access to Only occasionally, it is a place where we who believe in Christ will be able to live forever. John also notices something else about the New Jerusalem, and this brings us to the next description that we find in these verses. Number five, the New Jerusalem needs no light but God. The New Jerusalem needs no light but God. In verse 23, John says, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Speaking of this very day, uh, the prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 24, 23. Isaiah 24, 23. I love this verse. He says, Then the moon will be embarrassed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. That's amazing language there in that Old Testament verse. The brightness of God's glory in the new Jerusalem will be so great that it will make our present sun and moon embarrassed by how little light they gave off. Speaking of this future day in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19, Isaiah says to Israel, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, 
nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. This light of the glory of God in the new Jerusalem will be so great that in verse 24, John says, look at the verse. He says, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In other words, the peoples, at the very least, this means that the peoples of every tribe and tongue and nation who are ushered into the new Jerusalem will walk by the light of the city that emanates from the glory of God and from the Lamb who is shining. And as these nations and kings inhabiting the new Jerusalem will adventure forth from the new Jerusalem to go anywhere on the new earth, they will do great exploits and achieve great things under the light of God's glory that emanates across the whole new earth. And as they return to the new Jerusalem, they will bring the glory of their discoveries and exploits into Jerusalem, bringing their glory into the city. Speaking of them bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem, John closes out the chapter with a final description. Number six, the new Jerusalem is open only to those whose names are written in the book of life. The new Jerusalem is open only to those whose names are in the book of life. Observe what John says beginning in verse 25. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory, and they is the redeemed, obviously, they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. So in the new Jerusalem, there will be no night. It will be one eternal day, so the gates will never need to be closed while the city sleeps. The gates of the city will always be open, which means that there will be never any enemies to worry about sneaking into the city, and that residents are always welcome to adventure forth from the city and always welcome to return. And according to John's language here in verse 26, people of every tribe and tongue and nation and language will enter the new Jerusalem. And he says, bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. At the very least, this would be taken to mean that they will adventure forth from the new Jerusalem and do great exploits and make great discoveries on the new earth. They will achieve and produce glorious things, and they will bring their greatest glories into the new Jerusalem as a tribute to the living God and to the Lamb under whose light they experience success. I have to be honest with you guys and tell you that this um, whole passage that we're looking at this morning uh, does provide a whole lot of truth, but it also leaves me with a lot of questions of things I'm wondering about. Um, and we have to content ourselves with what God chooses to reveal to us. And along these lines, the language that John uses here in verse 26 um, to speak of kings and nations bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem, it, it kind of leaves you wondering what the relationship will be that will exist between the new Jerusalem and the inhabitants of the new earth. Will there be people who live in the new Jerusalem and then on top of that, there will be people who live on the new earth, but who do not have a residence in the new Jerusalem. Um, I personally uh, don't think that John's language ought to be understood in that way. Uh, I think at the very least, uh, John is in a passage like this, speaking of the elect peoples of every tribe and tongue and nation being ushered in the first place into the new Jerusalem. And of that, everyone would agree that this is what 
happens on some level. Beyond that, uh, Henry Morris in uh, his comments on this passage suggest, and I quote, that the redeemed will not only have their residences in the New Jerusalem, but will also be organized with national boundaries on the new earth in which they will have jurisdiction, unquote. Perhaps something like that might be true. If it is, then it seems that everyone in the eternal state will have a dual residency, having a home on the new earth and in the new Jerusalem. However you might choose to understand this, one thing is clear. You want to have a home in the new Jerusalem. And verse 27 tells you what you need to know to have that home and to get in. John says in verse 27, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What these words teach us is that no one who is right now unclean and practices abomination and lying without repentance will ever be able to come into the new Jerusalem. This city will always be open only to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But if you are here this morning and you have done abominable things as I have done and lied as I have done and sinned as I have done, you can repent of those things and run to Jesus to be your savior from those sins and experience atonement through his shed blood. And his blood will render you clean and fit for the new Jerusalem, and its gates will be forever open wide to you. So this is the new Jerusalem that John describes. We'll see next week even more descriptions of the city as we start looking at Revelation chapter 22. Uh, this is the city that we as Christians are looking for. This is the city we are waiting for. This is the city that mankind will never be able to produce by his own ingenuity. This is the city whose architect and whose builder is God. This is the city that Jesus has been preparing for you and for me over the past 2,000 years. And when you and I see this city, we're going to be impressed with his carpentry skills. You want to make it to this city? Your name must be written in the book of life. That's what the text says. And you know whose names are in the book of life because they believe in Jesus and if you have never believed in Christ and called upon his name for salvation, I plead with you to run to Jesus this morning and believe in him. Call upon his name. Embrace him as your Lord and as your Savior and as the forgiver of your sins. And you will thereby, in doing so, reveal that your name is written in the book of life. If you are a believer, let me just share this in closing. A passage like this ought to encourage you, and it's designed to encourage you, partly because of what it reveals to you and to me about the heart of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives you this information in the verses we've looked at today because he doesn't want you to have to wait until you get to heaven in order to have some idea of what this city is going to be like. Jesus is so excited about this place that he is preparing for you that he can't contain himself. He can't keep the secret, but he starts spilling all of these details about this place that he is preparing for you even now if you have believed in him. And he's doing this because he wants this to impact 
your life today. He wants what's being revealed here to encourage you and to make a difference. Think about, think about it this way. Let me use an analogy. If I told you this morning that beyond any shadow of a doubt that tomorrow morning you will be receiving $100 million in cash. And on, amen, and all God's people said, and that on top of that, you will receive a fully furnished $100 million mansion in your favorite place to live in. And if I told you that also tomorrow morning, you will experience a powerful healing from everything that ails you physically right now. If you heard me say that and you believed me and you knew for certain that tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. such things would be yours, would the knowledge of that wonderful tomorrow change the way you live today? Would it? Would it affect your mood at all? You think it might put a little spring in your step? Today, would it perhaps make you feel a little less anxious today, a little freer to be more generous with others even today? You think it puts you in a more loving mood to just show kindness to other people? You think you might want to talk about that with others whom you love? Well, guys, you have a greater future coming than what I have just described. And who cares if it doesn't come tomorrow morning at 8 a.m.? It's coming. And when it comes, the wait will seem to you then as if it was no wait at all. So my encouragement is for you to get out there this week and act like you know something. You know something about your future. Christ has spilled the beans and has told you of this place that he is preparing for you because he couldn't keep it to himself. And I encourage you to let this future affect the way you live today. Tell others about this place where you are going and let them know that they can live there with you too. If they will join you in looking to Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior and as the builder of the greatest city that the world has ever known. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do this. Lord God, you are good to give us passages like this that just in concrete ways, Lord, help us to look upon the future that awaits us. And there's more descriptions to come in chapter 22. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as a people to not only to understand the times presently in which we live, which we all try to do our best at doing, to understand the times, but help us to fix our eyes on eternity and to try to understand what awaits us, to understand the future age and the glories of these things that will belong to us in the eternal state that will be so substantial, so real, boasting such a glory and density that it will make our present life and our present world seem unsubstantial and tiny by comparison. This day is coming for those of us who believe in you, Lord. 
And we ask that you would help us to fix our gaze upon these glories that await us and that the fragrance of this very heaven would be released into our lives and the aroma of heaven would emanate from us as we walk this earth during the days of this week. The aroma of heaven would fill our homes and our relationships. That it would affect our countenance and that people would see on our countenance the early rays of this coming dawn. And while, Lord, our bodies waste away and our outer man decays through this short, brief life on earth, may you, through these truths, renew our inner man as we are marching irresistibly towards our glory selves when we will be splendid beings before your throne, living in a splendid place before you and basking in the glow of your glory for all of eternity, together with others who have been redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. We thank you, Lord, that Diana Whitworth is with you we know from Scripture that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in heaven. And she is rejoicing in your presence, more alive in this moment than, uh, than even we are. But even in heaven, she still awaits some of these glories that still lie in the future. She awaits the day of resurrection when her body will be reunited with her soul and she will live in an embodied existence with you forever together with all of us who have believed in Christ. There's still so much to look forward to. And we thank you, Lord, that you tell us so much of these things to come. Help us to live and to walk and to love from the good of these things that belong to us now and that will belong to us in the age to come. And we ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,